When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Kieran Goddard about his novel, Hourglass. Kieran grew up in Birmingham in a working-class family and is an acclaimed published poet. Kieran also speaks internationally on issues related to social change and develops research on several areas related to work and workers' rights. In this episode, we talk about specificity when writing universal themes, Kieran's writing routine, which involves checking in to grotty hotels, and how an obsession with pop music led him to writing. But first, here's Kieran with an extract from Hourglass. We have neighbours now who don't really talk to us, and they both wear gilets regularly. When I tell you that this strikes me as an important piece of information, you disagree. But I persist. Gilets have no sleeves. Where would you even wear your heart? Gilets are an aesthetic abomination and an affront to God. Art thanks existence by honouring that which prefigures utopia. You know this, we've spoken about it, we agreed on it. In what possible way do gilets prefigure utopia? Why are you always siding with them? The neighbours who wear gilets have a picture of Noah's Ark in their front window. I presume it was drawn by their child, who also wears gilets sometimes. The drawing has three thick wavy blue lines denoting the sea, a brown boat that is a perfect half circle, a thin orange animal that I take to be a giraffe, and a big rainbow that has so many colours that they have started to blend into one another like an old bruise. That drawing always makes me feel strange. One night I tell you that I think it makes me feel strange because there are no dead animal bodies floating about in the water if Noah only took two of each animal, then surely the flood would have killed the rest of them. By rights, any drawing of Noah's Ark should show the sea full of dead animal carcasses, hundreds of floating emu rib cages, thousands of hippo jaws, and so on, right? So I think the drawing makes me feel strange because it reminds me of death and all the ways that we hide it. But you disagree. You tell me that the drawing makes you think about how nice it might be to have a child, one who draws boats as half circles and gets too excited with the colours when they're drawing a rainbow. Something new takes root in me when you say that, and I can feel it spreading through my forearms. 
Hi, Kieran. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to talking about your new novel, Hourglass, with you. Great. Thanks, Chloe. Thanks for having me. So can you start us off by explaining what Hourglass is about? I've gotten into this uh, habit, as one does, I suppose, of, um, of describing Hourglass as just a love story. Um, and I tend to say, oh, you know, it's a love story, like classic love story. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl boy loses mind um, but there are there are some other things going on there the boy also loses god um, the boy also loses his kind of his sense of rootedness um, his sense of position in the sort of socio-economic and class context um, he also loses some strange thing like his toenails um, you know throughout the throughout the rest of the book but it's a it's a book about a love and losing what you love um, and how one kind of tries to do that in a you know, I suppose a spiritually dignified way. Yeah, so you've mentioned that the novel is a love story essentially at its heart and it's very much the the lifespan of a love story kind of from the, the early days of meeting the person asking all these uh, questions about each other and then to the painful aftermath when it ends. Can you speak about how that idea came to life for you? Yeah, of course. I mean, there was probably two two aspects of that that come together and the, the first is at risk of giving an incredibly uh, Ron Seal answer uh, to this I was I was actually looking at an hourglass of all things and um, it got me thinking about what an unusual object an hourglass is so if we compare it to a standard clock um, which shows us uh, the present moment or at least uh, like a representation of the present moment numerically and um, the hourglass does something completely different, right? It shows you the past. It shows you all the sand that has fallen through the hourglass. And um, it also shows you the future. It shows you all of the sand that's yet to fall through the hourglass. Um, whereas the present, which is of course the only moment we live in, is reduced to this tiny um, infinitesimal kind of miniature bit in the middle. And I thought, firstly, that's strange. And um, why, why has that never occurred to me before? What a kind of complex object an hourglass is. Um, and secondly, what would it look like if I expanded that middle section and I made um, all three, past, present and future, if I gave them kind of equal importance? And when I started to think about that, I thought that perhaps the state of being that distorts our relationship to time most profoundly is being in love. Um, so those were the two ideas I had in mind, really, um, mm. to trace um, the sort of, yeah, the past, the present and the future of a, of a love story, but to really focus in on the way that it kind of distorts, um, distorts time um, and subjectivity. So there are moments in the book where a few seconds last pages and pages, for example, and also moments where entire, what might even be years seem to pass. Mm. Um, you know, uh, incredibly quickly. So those were the kind of ideas I was playing around with. So you're primarily known as a poet and you've uh, obviously had uh, poetry published um, and the, the form of Algas has a poetic feel to it. So I was wondering whether you always knew it was going to become a novel, whether you kind of set out to write something in longer form or did it, did it start life as a poem itself? Mm. Um, it was always a novel, um, 
but the relationship between you know hourglass and my, and my poetry is, is there is one you know mm. absolutely um my poems tend to be incredibly short um you know kind of often less than sort of 30 words even um so the idea of writing a long poem has never occurred <laughs> you know, kind of never occurred to me um but um and I'd written novels previously um they just weren't in my view good enough mm. so they never kind of saw the light of day um the in terms of the, the sort of poetic form of, of hourglass there's definitely an attention to um the individual line, the rhythm of a line, um, a kind of density of, sim of symbolism that, that does give it a poetic feel, um, which isn't to say that those things don't exist in prose. Of course, of course they do. It's just, I suppose, it's where they sit in the hierarchy, you know, of, of, of importance. Um, and perhaps in Hourglass, they sit slightly nearer the top, uh, you know, rather than, let's say, pace or plot that mm. might, you know, more ordinarily... Um, that might ordinarily sit there. Um, so yeah, I think there is a relationship and there's a, there's a kind of architecture to the book that perhaps has a concordance with poetry as well. So um, the, the book set in, the book is three, uh, in three sections, um, each of which has an identical amount of subsections, um, which more or less have an identical amount of words in them. So there is a there is a kind of um, linguistic symmetry that mm. um, yeah you might be ordinarily used to see in 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 poetry I guess um, so yeah and I think you know on a more pragmatic level I began to read over the last two or three years more and more kind of formally experimental prose and it made me more confident that there was a mode and an audience mm. or um for prose and for novels that that did have that um yeah, as I say that maybe that attention to um the kind of density of symbolic language um as a primary concern yeah I was going to ask you about that because how did you feel knowing your novel has a, a sort of different shape to let's say a, a 300 page novel it's it's a slimmer novel did you feel like I mean that I think there has been lately We've seen more novels like that, novellas and, and things. Um, but did you feel a slight apprehension? Because in some ways, the publishing industry can be quite rigid in terms of what it sees as a novel. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I definitely felt a huge amount of apprehension, you know, <laughs> full stop. You, you know, the, I definitely knew that I'd created um, like a weird object on some level. Um, and... I know this is a you know a kind of well-worn cliche, but I wrote the book because I wanted to read the book, and the book mm. didn't exist. Um, you know, it was exactly the book I wanted to read, and I looked for it and I couldn't find it. And I, so I made it, and then absolutely had that feeling of is there any avenue in which anyone mm. else would care about this or accept it as you know, as a novel? Um, but that said, I think. Um, and this is, I've got no evidence for this, it's just a feeling, but the um, it does seem that, uh, especially in the kind of more literary fiction end of the publishing industry, that there does seem to be a re-engagement with a mm. kind of, a, a sort of older mid 20th century tradition of, um, you know, pl pliable prose, I guess. So, you know, you know whether, as you say, that's the novella or whether it's, um, 
you know, things that are more formally experimental. There's been some fairly high profile mm. um, successes, you know, over the last sort of five years, um, you know, Jenny Offal, Max Porter, those type of writers. And I think maybe in the way that commercial industries tend to work, um, once that model's proven, some of the drawbridges come down. Yeah, um, definitely. So, um, so yeah, I, I would, I was absolutely prepared for people going, what the hell is this? Um, <laughs> but thankfully it didn't happen. Was it, I was going to say, was it met with enthusiasm straight away? Did you have an agent already before you had written Hourglass or did you approach them with Hourglass? Was that how it happened? I didn't have an agent prior to Hourglass. Poets, apart from a tiny, you know, kind of, minority at the sort of Carol and Duffy level mm. um, don't tend to because you know 10% of nothing is nothing so, <laughs> um, so people tend not to be worth anyone's while really um, but I did have um, uh, in the you know in the in the spirit of transparency I, I did have uh, I'd, I'd had conversations with um, agents and with my agent in particular previously um, who had said, look, if you ever write anything that's not poetry, um, <laughs> I'd be very, you know, I'd be very interested to, mm. to, to see it. Um, so um, what I did was, you know, very kind of sheepishly send this over to to my agent and just said, look, I know you're not going to like this, you know, not <laughs> least because it's like, not least because it's still sort of poetry. Um, and uh, but I hoped that she might may, may have been able to direct me to another agent who who, mm. who might. Um, but um, she she took it straight away and, you know, and sold it relatively quickly. So I think it was, um, you know, I got very lucky in that sense. Um, and, and I think that's related to the form in a strange way, because it very much is you either like it or you don't. Yeah. You know, there was there was there was not much that could be done on a kind of pre editorial level to make it something that it wasn't yeah um you know so I didn't have that period of adjustment with my you know working on the book with my agent he just went straight out mm. there were no changes made at all not a single yeah. change um not least because I built in this very very uh clever mechanism where whenever yeah. someone asked for a change I could say well it's got the same amount of words in every section so you will ruin the symmetry completely if, how, if, um, how was that then for you to edit when you were when you were paying such close attention to that kind of um that rhythm and that pacing how was that editing for you um I mean my, luckily my my editor Anna Kelly is um phenomenal just completely um fantastic I mean the truthfully I would be really surprised if there were an identical amount of words now I'm sure that's a, someone sure someone's going to go now and count every word just to just to prove yeah, you I'm right sure or wrong <laughs> I'm sure it's been lost along the way but this, that's the spirit at least mm. um and um yeah it, I suppose it does affect the the editing process because it makes it much more of a line edit mm. process um we did in we did kind of add at the later editorial stage add more content about for example the, the mother character was um smaller in the in the original in the original draft but um i've i've written and written and edited another novel since and um it's been a wildly different experience just because of the it's much more tradition formally right. traditional mm. so would you say that the way you approached writing this novel was similar to the way you 
write a poem or was the experience incredibly different? Um, it, was, it was quite, it was quite different. Um, I suppose the so sheer poem, length of it was, was a, a complete new experience for you as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely on, on that front, that was different. And I mean, for me, um, actually maybe, do I mean different? They're related, but different. So for me, a poem would be about um, taking an image or two images that were, um, that seemed to suggest something to me and going in and in and in and in, you know, um, trying to find the right um, architecture to hold this single image, you know, like this single moment or whatever it mm. might be. Um, whereas writing Hourglass was very much like, where does, where does that image take me? Where, where's the next one? Mm. Like it was like following breadcrumbs almost. <laughs> um, so it was kind of going outwards rather than, you know, it had a, it had a velocity of outwards rather mm. than a velocity inwards. So um, I'm sure actually from the outside, people would say, well, actually it was, it was really similar, but emotionally it felt very different. <laughs> yeah, um, I can imagine. Yeah. So was there anything you learned in the process of writing the novel? And I suppose it's, it's taught you things for writing your next novel, but has it taught you anything for approaching poetry? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing this book taught me and, and, it's, and it's maybe the thing that's kind of unlocked my writing generally um, is I held this very, in retrospect, silly and also sort of pretentious and also <laughs> kind of banal um, idea of what um, kind of literary art looked like or sounded like. You know, and it's it, it's all of the all of the cliches that you know you learn from a teenager onwards. You know, capital R romanticism and the doomed artist and the you know this this kind of lifelong pursuit of kind of whatever it might be like existential truth or mm. you know some some grand concept. And I totally didn't understand that humour could be a route to that, and that actually part of my natural whatever natural means in this context but part of my part of my natural inclinations as a writer were comedic mm. and I and I suppressed that massively in my earlier writing like hugely to the point of non-existence and it was only when I allowed that to come out the more conversational tone you know the kind of absurdity let's say um, that everything opened up and it was also a route to all those other things that I wanted to do anyway. Mm. It was completely idiotic of me to not believe, you know, that comedy and a meaning could be, um, you know, bedfellows. Um, and I broke through that, I think, with Hourglass. And I don't think I'll ever go back, you know, whether that's in poetry or, you know, or prose. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that you say that. That I, I think maybe a lot of writers, when they're starting out, are trying to write in a a specific way kind of the way they feel like they should be writing um I'd like you say how your writing comes from you is naturally more funny and so it makes sense that if you're holding that back you're preventing your kind of truth coming out when you're creating something completely and you're just distorting your voice mm -hmm. as well I think you know um in the, yeah in the service of some ideal that is is not well served by that suppression anyway um, it's not as though as a reader or a, a you know um, 
as someone or an interpreter of art, you know, whether that's like painting, literature, whatever it might be, music, that I don't appreciate wits. I really do. <laughs> so, so, so what? So why I thought that it was verboten in my own. Yeah, yeah. Have my, maybe have it no goes. Maybe it goes back to that kind of thing of uh, like the pretentiousness that you you thought it had to be uh, incredibly serious, and it wasn't. There wasn't room for that kind of humour. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think you mm. do. You sort of you draw. Um, a very you know shaky and under theorized parallel between um humor and lack of substance mm. and the, you know and those things just aren't you know just aren't the case um at all really and i've heard actually a lot of writers who write kind of more comedic work say that actually it's incredibly difficult to be funny on the page so it is a it's a different skill in itself mm. I mean, it, I, I, it's certainly rarer, I think, mm. you know, whether that's a function of what's published or whether it's a function of what's written, I don't know. But um, I can almost count the number of genuinely funny books, you know, I've read. And I don't mean in that way that, you know, people say, oh, Dickens is really funny. And then you read it and you're like, it's not really funny though, yeah, is yeah. it? Um, you, know, <laughs> but, you know, books that have actually kind of made me, made me laugh. Um, you know, are quite sort of few and far between. And they also happen, tend to be ones that have really, really moved me because I mm. think they, you know, even the kind of, the type of laughter that comes when you're standing at the edge of a cliff and wondering whether to throw yourself off, it's still laughter. You know, <laughs> like it's very rare that one goes through like anything truly dark or meaningful without it having some hilarity you know, attached to it, yeah, at, yeah. Least in retros- at least in retrospect, you know, for, with a bit of critical distance. So. Yeah, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about your kind of, your wit in this novel, because I mean, even in your reading, the uh, the line about the, the gilets was, was fantastic. And I was just wondering, there's so many kind of little observations about the minutiae of life and, and all these kind of very specific details. Are you the kind of writer that is going around making these observations yourself and and noting them down are they kind of all stored somewhere physically or are they all just from your brain at the, at the time of writing do you know what I'd, I'd really love to say that i am i'm the type of person who has like a some sort of organized system or one of those <laughs> elegant um what what do they used to call them in the victoria commonplace books you know where you would copy out all of your you know favorite quotations and observations mm. but i but I genuinely don't. I think it's more that I just find everything stupid. Like on some <laughs> deep fundamental level, I find like um, like being alive quite absurd. Um, so it tends to be just, I'll sit down and I want to write about X. And the more I think about it, the more X sound, feels strange mm. to me. And if you just keep pushing on the strangeness of something, um, it's absurdity grand- generally tends to reveal itself. Um, so no, I don't keep a notebook or anything. Um, I do sort of use Twitter in that way, actually, come to think of it, um, to just almost write things out and test if they're interesting or, or funny. I've never drawn a direct line between that and my writing, but um, maybe maybe I sort of do use social media in that way. Mm. Um, I've certainly been told my Twitter account's sort of bewildering. <laughs> <laughs> you know because it's just because it's sort of all over the place um so yeah may, maybe actually i'm changing my mind in real time here, maybe maybe, yeah, maybe twitter is your maybe twitter is your notebook possibly yeah <laughs> maybe maybe i wanted to talk a, go back a little bit to talk about the love story in the in the center of the novel and 
because of the style of your book, it's told in a very kind of fragmented way. And, and like you said, sometimes the time can be distorted. But as a reader, it's such a vivid and complete picture of a relationship. You really get a sense of their time together, even though we're only seeing little snippets here and there. How did you choose the moments you were going to show their connection and relationship to build this complete picture together? What was the kind of your, how did you choose which bits were going to be important or significant in their time together? Mm. Well, I mean, firstly, I wrote a lot more than ended up in the book. So there was probably double the amount of, the, of, of content mm. and, you know, and then you par down to the most, you know, what, what strike you as the most essential things. Um, in terms of that process, um, the thing that really became clear to me uh, in writing, although I suppose I held this opinion theoretically anyway, is that the more specific the thing, um, the more universal the effect. Mm. And actually, um, I really tried to focus on on that stuff, the stuff that felt like completely um, unusual or unique mm. as an observation or as an action. Um, because I think that's actually what characterizes relationships. Um, like if, if people were to put a camera 24 hours a day on their own relationship and then show it to the outside world, I don't think anyone would get away without them thinking it was deeply strange. You know, they would use, you know, they would use, they, they'd have developed weird habits together. Yeah. They developed weird language, almost an entirely separate language. In fact, um, you know, there would be, um, strange backstories and metaphors, um, you know, all kinds of weird behaviors, let alone if you had access to the private things that each of the each of the constituents of the relationship were doing. So I really thought that there was a, a choice to be made here of like, if I keep the really specific, really unusual, really striking things, my gamble was that they would register um, with people in a way that if I went for the universal, mm. I think I would have ended up with a lot of people who quite liked the book yeah, um, and hardly anyone who loved it, mm. you know, um, but I had that very teenage um, desire for people to really love it. I would much rather have half the readers, but have them really adore it, mm. you know, to give it to people they love, you know, or, you know, rock, you know, you want you want the kid to like write something from it on their backpack or on their yeah <laughs> you know their school book. You know, um, so so that was the gamble really. I think, mm. um, and a lot of the stuff that came out, um, as in came was removed from via via editing was the more generic yeah stuff. It's and interesting. Often, sorry, you've never I've never actually talked about this before, but you've got me thinking. Often there was something weird wrapped in something slightly more mundane and what I tended to do was just remove all the mundane stuff until just the weird thing was left mm. and at first I thought is this just going to be totally nonsensical you know is it just going to be a collection of kind of psychotic rambling um but it seems to the, the logic of it seemed to hold together um in a in a way that was fragile enough that I think it mirrors the sort of psychic fragility that one has when they're in love. Mm. Um, you know, I thought there was something kind of spiderwebby about it that sort of, 
your brain can feel a bit like that i think when you're trying to maintain a connection with an, another entirely kind of separate human um yeah so that was a, such a rambly answer but it was a, <laughs> interesting no question. no it's a, it's a great answer because i think like you said it's it's the universal theme and yet to create that feeling you have to be specific and you know we've all had conversations with partners friends close people in our lives that are would be bizarre to outsiders but that makes mm. that makes a relationship real and when you've done that in hourglass that is what builds the picture that's what makes your couple feel like they have existed and that's really interesting you say that the things you removed were the universal things even though that was the that was the feeling you wanted to project mm. into the book yeah well, you kind of leave that as the as the lacuna, right? As the absence, mm. um, and then the reader can sort of project the generic stuff. Yeah, on, definitely onto it. I, I saw this really phenomenal, phenomenally interesting uh, to me at least, um, bit of data visualization once that that seems relevant. I'm a real music nerd, so the um, I saw this bit of data analysis that showed different genres of music and how many how many entirely specific words were used um within it and they showed if you had pop and rock in the middle the 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 vocabulary of the pop and rock canon was really quite limited because mm. it tended to be like you know you know love you know sadness you crying mm. dancing you know these kind of <laughs> you know quite generic things um but at either end of the scale on these complete outliers were hip hop and country and Western, which had vocabularies that were huge um, by comparison. Um, and it was because they all used specific things. Mm. They would very rarely say, you know, I walked down the road. They would name the road, you know. Yeah, yeah. They would very rarely say like, I was drinking. They would name the bourbon mm. or, the, you know, <laughs> or the wine. And I just, and I had something of that in mind as well um that you don't lose anything um mm. by being specific no one's ever read a book and said like oh no I drink red wine not white wine there's no so this, I, this doesn't I can't exist. relate to this character yeah <laughs> exactly. exactly hey it's Danny Pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What is your planning process like when you're writing? What was it like for this book? Because did you have in your head, I mean, I know one of the starting points was the hourglass itself and and a love story did you have in your mind what kind of themes and um ideas you wanted to write about before you started or was that something that came as you were writing yeah I definitely had um I definitely had an idea um and there is that you know that idea that you that there's a central dilemma that you're trying to solve in a book or whatever, you know, and that's the, the load star. That's the thing you, you keep in mind. Well, I think for me, it was, um, how do you end, how do you allow yourself to love what you love? You know, how do you, how do you allow yourself to love that you love what you love? Mm. You know, like, how do you have an honest relationship to your own desire? Um, because I, you know, I, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I just don't think we do. I think most of us are deeply alienated from our own desire. Um, if think, you know, someone were to ask me what I wanted, I don't think I could ever give a really good answer <laughs> to that. Um, so how, how do you love that? You love what you love, I think was the first thing. And the second thing was the, the ways in which love and being in love throw other parts of your life into relief you know, and they make you realize the compromises you've made and the acceptances you've made in life because they show you a kind of, they show you a sort of brighter horizon, right? They show you what being alive could be like, you know, if you hadn't made all of the compromises. So the question then is when love ends, how do you honor the love? Like the love's gone, right? Um, but how do you honor the lessons it taught you? Like, how do you live more bravely, more boldly, mm. You know more honestly even though the kind of source of it has gone um and there's a moment towards the end where the the narrator describes love as being you know i want you to have the biggest boldest most beautiful life brackets but only if it includes me close yeah. bracket, you know <laughs> yeah. and the question is like how do you get rid of the brackets mm. you know how do you look how do you uh, look at someone else and with and genuinely feel you know, I love you. And because of that, I want you to have the biggest, boldest, bravest, freest, most beautiful life, whether it includes me or not. Um, so those were the kind of questions I had um, in mind. And then I just let them kind of lead me, really. Mm. Um, on a, I mean, I do, on, a, on a practical planning level, um, I just tried to, I would write one section at a time, essentially, um, on a sort of more mundane level you know each section something you know something like 700 words so I wanted to talk about your writing routine really what what is your what is your a kind of a, a good writing day look like to you um so 
I find it really difficult to write in snatches. You know, I really admire people who say like, oh, I just try and do an hour a day or 45 minutes a day. Um, and I admire that because A, I, I find it impossible and B, um, I'm sure that it's correct that, you know, kind of continuing to sharpen your pen, you know, in that way and, and to treat it as a, a practice is, is, is absolutely, you know, helpful and um, I'm just utterly useless at, at working in that way so what I would tend to do is try and carve out chunks of time so a few days at a time you know whether via annual leave or, or other things and I would go <laughs> actually my, my favorite thing to do is go to a hotel in a, a really terrible hotel in a city <laughs> where, I know, where I know no one um, and can't be sort of distracted um, and just kind of write for two or three, you know, two or three days straight, really. Um, because I think I do have a much more old fashioned and in some ways embarrassing, you know, relationship with ideas like inspiration or the the muse or, you know, those type of things. I, I, I sometimes do, uh, even, even if I don't believe them, actually, there is some part of me that kind of registers them as being true. And, mm. I have to be able to sit there for a long time and kind of let the good stuff come come through. Um, longer term, I might need to develop some, <laughs> some more practical uh, techniques because I'm not sure how viable that is over the you know over the long term. What do you do on the days where you're really struggling, especially if you've booked off this time and you suddenly get to your really grotty hotel and you think, oh God, nothing is happening. What do you do then? Um, I tend to just write anyway um in a kind of free associative way um luckily or unluckily depending which way you look at it I had a really big Yates phase in my 20s <laughs> and so um and I've got a very esoteric uh, mother so the idea of kind of automatic writing is not something I find that strange mm. so I'm happy to just sit there and type um and hope that at some point that the water stops being muddy and starts coming out clear or something like that. Um, so I don't stress over it. I just, um, right. time. yeah, I move from writing to typing, I guess, is, the, <laughs> is maybe the, the thing that I do. So going back, where did your, where did your love of writing come from? Kind of, were you, were you always writing even from a young age? No, absolutely not. I am, um, I didn't read a book till I was probably 15, 16. Um, I mean, I'm sure I might have read one as a baby or something. Or <laughs> read to you, yeah. But I wasn't a reader at all. I, 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 have, um, I have one of those sort of predictable, but no more powerful for being predictable stories of like a single individual teacher who, mm. um, you know, basically decided that, I should do something other than, you know, chase girls or whatever it was I was wasting my, <laughs> wasting my school time doing. And, um, you know, gave me, gave me books. Um, uh, but prior to that, the thing I loved most of all was um, pop music. I was obsessed, like utterly, um, like deliriously obsessed um, with, with pop music to the extent that I would kind of write out um, verbatim just all of the lyrics to all of the songs you know off the radio I'd have like piles and piles of paper just full up with these you know words so I had a sense that words could do something magical 
um, I think, but it all came through song, um, not through not through books. And and I still sort of think that, like I still don't think there's ever been a book that's as good as like Be My Baby by the Renettes, for example. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I've got, you know, I've got undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in English literature. But, I mean, I would trade, <laughs> but music's you know, still but, better. <laughs> yeah, it is really. I trade it all for, you know, to, to move that many people as powerfully mm. and instinctively as, as as a great as a great song so words yes but books no right um, okay that's really interesting so when you're perhaps even when you're uh even though you write to get get the words out is it music you turn to more than than books for inspiration or just to kind of get the creativity going I mean I mean I read a lot you know it's kind of yeah, I read I read an awful lot, but I find it hard to read. I find it hard to read generically similar things when I'm writing. So mm-hmm. if I'm going through a phase of writing something, I'll often read a lot of nonfiction, for example. I find having other fiction in my head uh unhelpful, um, both because it kind of bleeds in and blurs, but also I don't want to get into the game of, you know, comparison. Mm. um you know or, or anything or anything like that um I do listen to a lot of music when I write but I cannot listen to music with words because right. yeah it will just, just it will just completely uh you know <laughs> I, I, I'm exactly the same but it's amazing how many people do listen to music with words while they're writing I can't do it I don't know how people do it no normally I don't I don't <laughs> I'd end up just like you know the, the dialogue between the characters would just be the salt whatever yeah. song <laughs> you'd end up writing you'd end up writing a musical instead of what you were actually hoping to write yeah exactly <laughs> which is which is obviously the dream long term but <laughs> um I know we've already talked about it and um it is the worst question but if you did have to make any comparisons uh between your book and others who would you say your novel would appeal to perhaps other books that you think it kind of shares the space with? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, and I really should find a good answer to it because, <laughs> uh, because every time people ask me, I kind of mumble and fluff the, fluff the response. Um, I mean, the, the, the one that keeps coming up, um, and I, but I think it's possibly a slightly superficial just because of the form, is, is Max Porter's Grief mm-hmm. um, is a Thing with Feathers, which is, you know, uh, I'm very flattered by, um, but uh, I, I think beyond the formal component, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced by. Um, the maybe the Jenny Offal novels mm-hmm. um, might be might be interesting if people like those. Um, they were certainly uh, helpful in in making me realise that you you could write in this kind of um, fragmentary form and still have you know a coherent heart or can hit coherent whole um and then possibly i'm just thinking of contemporary novels here rather than you know what i actually want to do is which is compare myself to the greats of the english literature <laughs> so shakespeare aside um yeah. if you're a fan, if you're a fan of hamlet then definitely read my book um but the the other one maybe would be something maybe like Patricia Lockwood's most mm-hmm. recent novel, like if that's the kind of humour you're yeah. you're into, then maybe you'd find some something, you know, mm. something in the book. Yeah, that's a good shout. I think. But yeah, my actual answer is Hamlet. Chloe. Okay, <laughs> Hamlet. 
if you're a Hamlet fan, this is a book for you. <laughs> so thinking about um, other writers, you must have picked up a lot of uh, kind of advice or learned a lot of things yourself. Can you give me your top three tips for um, any writers out there working on their first novel? I would say your limitations are probably your strength. So don't worry about them. It's way better to be really, really, really good at something than to break your back trying to um, trying to fix all the things you're not great at, you know. So I think um, if you find that um, you're incredible at dialogue but really poor at plot, I have nothing against writing an entire book with no plot and all dialogue. You know, there's, spa there's space for all kinds of strangeness. So mm. um, that I would say, um, I would say, don't worry about what the what you think the market wants, what you think makes for a popular book. Um, one, because um, culture is a complex machine and you can't predict it for a start. And secondly, you're on about a four year time lag. So by the time you actually get a book out, that'll be, you know, the, the industry will have already bought 15 books that are carbon copies of the last one that was a hit. Mm -hmm. You know, you can see it already. There's a Nirvana comes out and everyone loves it because it's amazing. And then people kind of like Pearl Jam, but like the publishing industry very quickly gets to just some random grunge band that kind of sounds <laughs> a little bit like Nirvana and no one cares about anymore. Mm. So you really risk being at the tail end of a kickback if you try and time the market. So um, I would say that um, and possibly this is maybe a very arrogant thing to say, and it's definitely mileage may vary. Um, I would say be wary of the type of consensus that comes from sharing your writing around and writers groups and creative writing courses and those kind of things. They can be absolutely amazing. I'm not criticizing them, but in my experience, they're incredibly good at producing um, polished seven out of 10 books that no one hates. Um, and the, just, you know, I just don't think the world needs any more of those. I just <laughs> really don't. Um, so it kind of, yeah, maybe like lean into, lean into your oddness, make your mm. thing, put it out in the world, cross your fingers, hope for the best. Yeah, that's a good bit of advice. <laughs> and finally, I think we've, we've touched on it already, but can you speak a bit about what you're writing next? Sure, yeah. So, um, so my second, well, my next novel um, has been finished and sold um, already. So that's, I mean, that will take time to come out, I guess. It'll be well, 18 months or something or more, possibly. Um, that's, a, um, that's a much more formally conventional novel. Um, it's a five perspective um rotating five rotating perspectives and it focuses on um essentially on working class male friendship and all of the things that go with that including including the kind of you know barely suppressed homoerotics of it um you know the kind of the kind of crypto psychology of like male love where you know instead of telling your friend you love them you say oh you know did you did you love track three on that album the same way I love track three on that <laughs> album? And, you know, and when they say yes, what you're actually saying is I love you too, you know. <laughs> um, 
and it but it's also you know it's also a novel about um class and property property in particular um you know land place um so so yeah i again you know that 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 speaks to my previous point you probably couldn't think of a more unfashionable plot than that you know kind of five five blokes moaning on um <laughs> is that um, how it's going to be pitched uh yeah, your, your marketing uh tagline <laughs> that's my working title um yeah so but yeah that that's um that's done and 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 so you know you have a few other territories so that's great um so i'm currently working on very very speculatively um uh, you know an, an, another book that's um may focus on uh the question of kind of long-term incestual relationships um and you know all of the different complexities that arise from that but um i'll probably i'll probably pause that one there because <laughs> it needs some like working out before i talk about that publicly without you know being put in jail or lunatic asylum <laughs> oh well thanks so much kieran i'm uh, really looking forward to reading your your next book uh five lads moaning on as it's now called <laughs> <laughs> thank you for talking with me today uh thanks for having me chloe i really appreciate it that was Kieran Goddard talking about his novel Hourglass, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you're subscribed already, please consider leaving a review. See you next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.